20 days later, the world is still watching this ongoing battle between Russia and Ukraine. Many countries across the continent, in Asia, in Europe, in the continent of Africa, are paying much closer attention. Now this time, they're not really talking much about what the Russian will do or continue to influence the country of Ukraine, but meanwhile, the topic of national security topped the agenda. You know, for decades, there's so long that we always think about national security is supposed to be a domestic issue whenever there's a conflict arises. However, this time, I think the world, especially some parts of the world, is getting this idea wrong. So that's why it's my great honor and privilege to invite Professor Rees to join our show. And Professor Rees is a professor of international security in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham in United Kingdom. And prior working at the university, he taught at the University of Lancaster and the College of Europe in Burgess and the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Professor researchers cover specifically regarding national security, and recently I was very lucky enough to come across one of the articles that are written by Professor Rees. So that's why today we are going to dive into with Professor Rees regarding the national security in the midst of the whole chaos. Professor Rees, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much. Professor Rees, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, again, the whole world is watching this ongoing invasion from Russia to Ukraine, which is very devastating. But very seldom, as I mentioned before, we don't talk about or we tend to overlook the issue of national security. Now, let's talk about this baby step. The first thing, how would you describe this national security issue on this perspective of Ukraine at this moment? Do you think it's completely collapsed or you think there's still a hope for the country to fight back? I think Ukraine has lived next door to um, Russia for uh, a period of time now since the ending of the Cold War and has been very wary of maintaining its national security against a very large, a very powerful neighbor in the shape of Russia. Um, and I think the whole world has been surprised and appalled by the decision that Vladimir Putin took to invade Ukraine and undertake this massive attack upon the Ukrainian population. Um, but I think at the same time, the world's population has been struck by the strength of purpose and the courage of the Ukrainian people in resisting this aggression and fighting back in a way that I don't think many people would have given them credit that they would have been able to do. Hmm. Professor Reese, you know, for decades that we have seen images or videos that regarding this national security or this defensive system in Russia, you know, for, for years that, especially for the Western Hemisphere, majority of the leaders, including some of them today, they believe this part of the world, it's untouchable. 
especially uh, given the condition that Vladimir Putin is ruthless, is heartless uh, when it when it comes to uh, occupying the territory, when it comes to uh, uh, really uh, uh, taking over or for the personal interests. No, I, I, I the question I want to ask you is: Do you think? Again, not only from the Western part, but the whole world. Do you think that today, in the midst of the whole struggle between Russia and Ukraine, are we reading Vladimir Putin right? Or there's still something that the world is missing today in terms of his ambition, his desire, and his greed? I think that's, that's a really interesting question, a very, very difficult one to answer because trying to get into the mind of the russian leader is is an immensely difficult thing um i think to to understand him better you have to go back to 1989 and to the end of the cold war when the soviet union with all its constituent republics collapsed and it, they broke away into separate parts of independent uh, countries and i think Vladimir Putin, as the leader of Russia, and he's been in power now for nearly 22 years, he looks back on that as one of the great kind of tragedies of international politics, that he believes that the former Soviet Union had a place of significance and power and was one of the true kind of global superpowers at the time. And since that period of the Cold War, we've seen Russia in a, in, a, in a kind of process of relative decline to its, to its neighbors. We've seen Western countries and their NATO organization move closer to the borders of Russia. And in light of that, I think Vladimir Putin has looked at this and felt that Russia is kind of being surrounded by other countries, other countries that are antagonistic towards Russia, and therefore has lashed out in this violent and very unexpected kind of way, um, and has used the majority of his forces against a neighboring country in order to try and e expand Russia's kind of sphere of influence again, in the belief that Russia can once more be a big power a big influential country on the international scene by force of arms mm. and that really has shocked the world i think that that a country that sits on the un security council could use force in such an aggressive and premeditated way and cause such huge damage and suffering to a neighboring country and to, and to millions of people you know professor reese as you were explaining this to us Again, every day when we watch TV and turn on the news, we know the situation in Ukraine, it's not going to get any better soon. Especially recently that we saw not only that from the military side, this country is suffering a lot more, but also from the perspective of the civilians. You know, we saw this bombs and this uh, the targeting uh, uh, from Russia are moving into women and children, which is very devastating to see. So that's why I would say, you know, as a decent human being, it's rather difficult to grasp what is happening in the world today. And keep in mind, I always say we are just in the into the third month of the 2022. It is really hard to imagine. Professor, I still want to go back to 
national, national security issue. At this moment, we are looking at 2022. How should we define or how should we re-understand the meaning of national security? Does that just only simple means not to get invaded by any other countries? Or there's something a bigger or greater picture behind this term? Because we know that today, terrorism, I don't want to say it's something that we shouldn't consider, but compare with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, this matter seems less important. So again, from your perspective, Professor Rees, how should we define the meaning of national security in the year of 2022? Again, I think a really good point. Um, I think we had got to a belief, particularly in the West, that national security was relatively safe, that we lived in a world where borders were respected, that it was very unlikely, extremely unlikely, that, that countries would use force against each other, particularly in a kind of unprovoked and out of the blue kind of way. And I think mm. that's been, in some respects, the most shocking dimension to what's happened in Ukraine, is that we thought that the Russians, as they had done previously, they've brought military forces up to the border of Ukraine and kind of threatened the country. And we, we all kind of thought that was a position of kind of leverage, of, of threat, of using force as a kind of big stick to threaten uh, other countries and, and to get attention around the world. Very few people thought that Vladimir Putin was serious about invading a country mm. and often trying to occupy it. And I think even those that took a worst case analysis and an expectation of what he might do in Ukraine thought, well, he'd, he'd kind of occupied Crimea in the south and he wanted some kind of access to that. And therefore he might use military forces in Ukraine in a very limited way, with very limited objectives, to try and secure certain bits of territory. But what he has done is to invade the whole country mm. and to use massive force against, as you say, both the military in Ukraine and its civilian population. And I think that has really changed the kind of public perception about national security, that we have gone back almost in time to a period in the Cold War where it was possible to envisage war between countries on a major interstate level. And that has pulled the world up by, by, you know, by, by, by its by expectations, really, and, and caused huge alarm because it's suddenly possible that countries could go back to a situation where a major international conflict is possible and mm. is, is, is credible. And so, as you say, the kind of perception of national security has changed quite dramatically as people have got to grips with this unfolding situation. Mm. You know, Professor Rees, I don't know if you are, are into sports or not. And we know uh, when we look at sports arena, especially rather competitive sports, you know, since I was a little... The coach always taught me one thing is, it takes two to tangle. 
So in other words, you know, if you would like to win this competition, it's better that you play as a team, not as an individual. Now, with that said, for for years that people tend to focus on this international relationship between Russia and neighboring country such as China. And recently from this Western media, people tend to believe that China, it's again, perhaps secretively supporting or sending military weapons or some type of resources to support a Russia regime under Vladimir Putin. Given this condition, those two leaders, they form this diplomatic and personal relationship. So in other words, with 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 a partnership, the security or the national security, this defense system actually got empowered, especially for the Russian side. Professor Reese, from your perspective, how accurate or or how uh, uh, false is such a statement? Do we believe or can we really actually say the reason why Vladimir Putin is so confident regarding his power, especially in terms of defense and attack, because there's a country called China, it's putting more resources into the pocket of the government? Thank you. Um, I think there's a number of dimensions to that. I think it would certainly be true to say that Russia under Vladimir Putin since 2007 has been rearming itself. And it's it's done so to some extent out of the spotlight, but there has been a huge outflow of resources in Russia into its military. Mm. The military that had been relatively uh, underfunded and run down after the end of the Cold War was brought back up into a much more um, capable kind of condition. At the same time, as you rightly say, Russia has reached out for relationships around the world. And because of its activities in places like Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine in Crimea in 2014, it has found itself under sanctions and to some extent isolated. And so along with its activities in Syria from uh, 2014 onwards, Russia has looked for other relationships. Mm. And in China, it has found a country with whom it can have a certain degree of, of friendship and closeness. Russia historically has provided, since the end of the Cold War, a certain amount of kind of advanced weaponry to China to help the Chinese, particularly in, in aircraft. Um, a lot of, if you look at kind of Chinese air capabilities, they have developed from technology that's been shared with them by Russia. But also China has been a big importer of Russian hydrocarbons, oil, gas, all these have helped fuel, uh, if you'll forgive the pun, the economy of China and helped it become a much more uh, prosperous and mm. uh, advanced economic state. So there's there's points of linkage and cooperation between the two countries. And it was quite striking in the run-up to the war, in the recent war in Ukraine, that Putin did you know, talk with Xi Jinping in China, and there was a certain degree of kind of closeness between them. And China has been indicating in its 
foreign policy statements how important the friendship is between the two countries. So I wouldn't want in any sense to put the kind of blame for what's happened in Ukraine at China's door. It's it's that's not the case. Mm. But I think Xi, I think Xi Jinping in China has has basically been consulted if you like, by Vladimir Putin on what his intentions were regarding Ukraine. And I think there's a certain acquiescence there on the part of the Chinese to what the Russian government has then gone on to do. Mm. You know, it's so interesting that for years, and you know, the first time, Professor Reese, that I could think about in terms of foreign policy, national defense, we could actually trace all the way back to the 1960s, you know, uh, when John F. Kennedy was the president and that was a rumor flowing around, right? So again, U.S. was under attack uh, by the country of Cuba and everybody from the government to the citizen was terrified. But again, luckily, we're so grateful that it did not take place. But for years, again, we've been talking about this defense policy from every single country but this is the simple question, but again, it's a very complicated for us to understand is Professor Reese. For years, we've been shaping the defense policy. We've been shaping this international policy. But why today in the day and age where technology is thriving, Internet is wide open. Somehow, when it comes to national policy, when it comes to national security, a uh, 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 political uh, uh, analysis, somehow we are still not getting accurate information. So in other words, we're still lagging behind. What is the problem that preventing us? I, I don't want to say to prevent the conflict, but at least we should get ahead of the information instead of falling behind. You see what I mean? Mm, I do. I think there's, a, there's a, a distinction to be drawn between what you might call military capabilities and intentions, um, where intelligence agencies are very sophisticated, um, those in the West and Russia and China, right around the world, is in measuring each other's kind of military hardware and capability. We know how to do that. We have satellites, we have means of picking up electronic communications, etc., which allows us to know what the kind of the hardware is, if you like, mm. of, of our potential adversaries. What we can never quite understand is what the potential intentions of our adversaries may be. And that is really what has caught the world by surprise with Vladimir Putin. He moved in the past military forces up to the border of Ukraine and then moved them away again. And he did this on, an, on a, one or two occasions in the past. And people thought, you know, this is a way of, of, of extracting a certain amount of influence. Nobody really thought he was going to actually cross the threshold mm. and use force on such a massive scale. And he has done that. And it's it's even difficult now to understand why he's done that, because he has unleashed such huge forces in this military operation. It's very difficult to see what objectives he's actually trying to achieve, other than the, the kind of massive destruction of Ukraine. 
the the dislocation of its cities and its population and huge refugee flows. So if he wanted, if he did believe somehow that he would have some sort of welcome for his forces and he would achieve a swift victory, then that has been massively disabused because Ukraine has united under its leader, President Zelensky, and has fought back with huge courage and fortitude. And so I think if Putin went in there thinking this was going to be a swift, relatively bloodless achievement he was going to uh, to make, then he has been massively shocked by what he has, has, has experienced. And Russia is now in a very, very difficult situation. Mm. Um, does it want to level the whole of Ukraine? Does it want to do the whole country just massive damage? Perhaps, but that would be such a, a pointless exercise. It's very difficult to see Russia occupying and being able to administer a country of over 45 million people and do so in some kind of in a productive way. It just doesn't make any sense. Hmm. You know, Professor Reese, I want to talk about the topic on military. And I know that you taught extensively on the subject, you know, related to military power. And I think that really go hand in hand with uh, national defense or national security as well. We know some countries in the world today that the military power, it's in this what I called ambiguous phase. So in other words, only through limited information that we know the military can become powerful or can become effective when it comes to reality. But on the other hand, some of the militaries that, you know, uh, uh, there was an old saying back in the days when I was in school, it says, uh, uh, barking dogs do not bite. So in other words, it looks gigantic, it looks threatening, but internally it's rather vulnerable or it's inefficient. So let's talk about from the Western Hemisphere. You know, we know, again, the military power from China, the military power from Asia, We've been seeing and we've been guessing for decades, but somehow to the Western side, to the American side, they still see their own military power has, still has a lot more room to improve. Now, the question to you, Professor Ree, is, is why are we getting into this matter? So in other words, why should we pay attention to military power when it comes to comparing a uh, comparing contrast why can't we just get the first-hand information, get as much as we can, and then completely go after them? What will be the problem for that? Thank you. Um, I think it's, it's very difficult to, um, to conduct military operations. It sounds quite a, a strange thing to say, but modern warfare is so complex and interconnected, bringing together ground forces, air forces, naval forces, cyber capabilities, all sorts of forms of, of electronic communication. It's one thing, as you were saying a moment ago, to kind of build up your military and spend a lot of money on it and have a lot of tanks, aircraft, ships, whatever they may be. But actually becoming an effective fighting force Training and 
having experience of conducting real military operations is is hugely important and western countries since the ending of the cold war have fought in a number of conflicts from in the balkans to the wars in iraq and afghanistan and more recently in places like libya and and Syria, and they have built up a body of expertise about how to use military forces most effectively. And even then, with all that expertise, they have not always been able to achieve, if you look back to Iraq, for example, the objectives and Afghanistan, the objectives that they set themselves. So actually using military forces in a, an effective way is very, very difficult. And I think that's a little bit of, of the lesson we can draw for the Russians in Ukraine. They've had this huge military force. They've spent lots on it. They've built it up. But their actual experience of using it and integrating different parts of their armed forces on a battlefield has shown just how difficult that is to achieve. And I think the Russians themselves are beginning to kind of admit very kind of privately what Western observers and intelligence agencies have been observing, and that is that they've had big ambitions, but they've not been able to actually put those into effect because the Ukrainians have fought very well and have been supplied by Western countries with anti-tank weapons and anti-aircraft weapons, etc. And in the light of that, the achievements of the Russian military have been able to actually deliver have been very, very modest. Mm. And that's why the Russian military now seems to be resorting to these kinds of rather brutal tactics of bringing heavy artillery towards and surrounding cities and then just shelling the cities and doing maximum damage. To, to, to property and to the civilian population. It's a very it's a very salutary experience for the Russian military as to how difficult their operations have been. It's also very salutary to us looking at the kind of destruction that's being wrought upon Ukraine. But Professor Reese, the reality is Russian military power, if they continue to fight day by day or continue to fight against the Ukrainian uh, uh, military power, it's actually costing them so much more damages than on the other side. So in other words, this is a, again coming to the simple question is if Vladimir Putin is not winning right now. Why not just pull back the troops? Why not just call it halt? So in other words, what is the purpose? So in other words, let's say if I want to play in a sports, I know I'm going to be in this losing point or I'm going to be in a losing team. Why even bother to go inside at the first place? Sure, Vladimir Putin made the point. All right, he's trying to prove to the world, especially to the Western Hemisphere, that I am solely in charge of this. But as I mean, again, we're looking at 20 days later, this war is not going anywhere. Why not just pull back? Because you cannot afford to lose everything without getting one positive result. Why is that? I think that's, that's, that's a, a, a really good question. It's one that's you know, dominating the minds of, of, of the people of Ukraine and also Western military analysts. We're not sure what, you know, 
Putin is actually going to do in this circumstance. He's certainly taken a lot of damage to his military forces. Um, he's certainly not achieved the objectives that he expected to achieve relatively quickly. Um, there's a huge amount of face that's been invested by Putin in this military operation. Mm. He declared the Ukrainians to be neo-Nazis. He declared them to be kind of a threat to the the pro-Russian groups in the Donbass and Lukansk area. So in that sense, he has a, a certain amount of, well, a large amount of his own kind of personal um, importance invested in this operation. So it's going to be difficult for him to suddenly turn around and do a 180 degree kind of exit. I think what we in the West and what the Ukrainians are trying to do is offer Putin some kind of face-saving formula where he can say, I've achieved some of the things that I said were terribly important for Russia, and I have you know, increased Russia's security by dealing with potential threats for the future, and that will give me the basis to withdraw. Now, there's some tentative evidence that he might be beginning to be open to that. We're hearing that some of the negotiations going on between the Ukrainians and the Russians are being more productive. So mm. there's, there's room for that. And recently, yesterday, Zelensky came out with a statement which said, you know, Ukraine does not have any expectation of joining NATO, which was one of the big things that Putin said that he was very afraid of. So they're trying to offer, I think, Putin some kind of face-saving potential. But on the other hand, Putin is also talking about bringing in reinforcements mm. into the conflict. He's talking about bringing people like the Wagner Group, the kind of um, the sort of um, mercenary group that are ex-military from from Russia to, to to bear on the conflict. So there's there's a two-pronged strategy here with the Russians of negotiation, but also upping the, the pressure. And who knows which way Putin will eventually decide to jump. Hmm. Professor Reese, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's go back to international security. Again, coming back to reality today, when we think about national security, it's not just about the inland. You know, it's not just about the land occupation. And also what's so significant is the ocean territory. You know, in Asia, the, the uh, topic regarding South China Sea and then all the way to the Pacific Ocean and to, you know, we can name all of them. But today, Professor Rees, how important it is for us to pay attention to international security from the perspective of water. Because again, we know that battle can actually take place not only in land, but also in water. But today we know that resources in the water mean so much to a lot more countries, specifically to Asia, to the countries in Southeast Asia. How important or how significant it is to for us to understand international security also has the direct correlation with water territory. I think I think it's very important. I think if we zoom out of the kind of our discussions about Ukraine and, and look at the kind of global picture for a moment, I think over the last few years, probably five years, 
Western countries have begun to re-engage, if you like, with the importance of the sea as a as a means of communication and as a potential um, conflict zone between countries. And I think, as you rightly alluded to there, the issue of, of China, um, the issue of um, America's influence in that part of the Pacific and where China and American interests could start to conflict in the future. I think that's led the world to start taking the issue of naval power much more significantly. Mm. And if you remember in the conflicts that we've experienced over the last 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, that kind of took attention away from naval power. And people were thinking of it, of insurgency, counterinsurgency, fighting on land, etc., etc. Those dimensions were uppermost. But with the growing tensions that have been taking place between America and China, the the naval dimension of the risk of future conflict that has got a lot greater attention, and rightly so. And I think. Britain, for example, my own country, you know, it's just put uh, a large kind of aircraft carrier to see the, the Queen Elizabeth. And it was interesting that the first sailing of that ship kind of um, was to the Asia Pacific region. Mm. And to show that, you know, uh, a country like Britain, as well as the United States, is very much focused on the issue of naval power in the future. Mm. Professor Reese, I want to end our conversation again going back to the region of Asia. And this year, I'm sure that you also follow the news and follow the political shift. In the country of South Korea, they recently elected a new president. And last year, in the country of Japan, they elected a brand, a brand new prime minister. And also for the Philippines, I mean... The, the reason why I listed those countries because American, the American government, actually they have their naval bases set up in those countries. So in other words, this, these naval bases are not only playing this significant role as guarding their territory, but also sending a strong message to other countries in, in terms of international security or national defense. Professor, e, uh, Professor Reese, I want to ask the last question is, would you say or how do you think that China or any other countries should respond to those naval bases or to continue to, to understand you in this quad relationship, this uh, naval alliances? How would you think that they should respond or they should deal with those al alliances with America? I think over the last kind of um, 10 years, America in particular has kind of turned its attention to the Asia Pacific area and the, the challenge that it sees China presenting to it in the future. Now, you're right to say that America has an extensive array of allies in that part of the world, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, etc., etc. And I think and Australia, of course. Um, so I think there is a sense for China that it is facing an increasing kind of 
challenge from America and its allies in the region. And I think of, of all the areas of the world at the moment, um, that's a region of the world that I think we need to pay a lot of attention to and be very mindful of, because the risks of conflict, of um, even by miscalculation between the different agents in that part of the world is a really significant one. And it's kind of strange that, you know, the world was, was increasingly devoting attention to that part of the world. And then suddenly out of the blue, almost the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has again, changed our focus and shifted it back to the, um, to the Euro-Asian kind of landmass. So in that sense, I think for the longer term, you're absolutely right. That region of the world, the Indo-Pacific region, is one that I think has the most potential for conflict between big powers. And I think China is looking very seriously at its own military capabilities and will want to have such capabilities that it feels it can stand up for itself against its, its neighbours. And, and one more question to add on. And Professor Rees, how worried should we be in this year or the so forth upcoming years when we are dealing with China from this international uh, policy or from this political security aspect? Should American government to readjust or reshift their strategies or we should continue the path that from our previous administrations that be toughened and be have this uh, uh, stone cold attitude uh, when it comes to dealing with countries such as China, North Korea, and so forth. I think I think you're right. I think America has been shifting its attention to China and seeing China as the big longer term challenge. It's not just a military challenge. It's a challenge in terms of its economic strength, in terms of its technological sophistication, etc. China is, is, a, is a bigger challenge to the United States, frankly, than Russia, because it's a, a bigger, more advanced, more prosperous country. Um, I would hope over the longer term, you know, that, that America and China can coexist mm. and can find ways of, of managing their competition and not letting it kind of tip over into conflict because conflict between such huge powers as, as America and China would be, again, like the risk of, of Russia and America, they would be catastrophic conflicts and we must avoid them at all costs. And Professor Reese, I have to agree. I have to say that I 100% agree with you because right now, given this fact that the conflict between Ukraine and Russia right now, not only that brings uh, uh, intensity and also the attention for the people in both countries, but also outside those two countries in this international community, it actually brings a lot more devastating or even terrifying feelings to rest of the members. Well, Professor Reese is a professor of international security in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom. Professor Reese, 
thank you so much for taking your time to join our show. It's been a pleasure of talking to you, and we'd love to have you back as we continue to watch how the international security, the national security, is going to unreveal itself for the coming years. Thank you, Professor Reese.